So there's all kinds of hidden fees within your business uh, that are just part of doing business. One of those is credit card processing. And for us, we didn't even realize how much we were paying in credit card processing with the first uh, management software we were using for our practice. And when we switched over to PTO Everywhere, we just realized we were saving literally hundreds of dollars a month with credit card processing with their partner with CardPoint versus who we were using with our prior software. This has made a massive difference. It's more than paid for itself. It allows us to decrease our overhead. It allows us to have more cash flow to reinvest in our people, in our technology, in our facility, in marketing, and everything that's gonna drive the business. So don't uh, get abused by credit card processing companies. Make sure you're paying what you should pay. And if you're looking for a management software, I highly recommend PT Everywhere. Directly integrates with a processor, makes it very easy, and their rates are super, super competitive. So it's saved us a ton of money, and it probably will do the same for you if you don't know what you are getting charged. So head over to PT Everywhere, take a look at what they've got. I think you'll really like it. So here's the question. How do physical therapists like us, who don't want to see 30 patients a day, who don't want to work home health and have real student loans, create a career and life for ourselves that we've always dreamed about? This is the question, and this podcast is the answer. My name is Danny Matei, and welcome to the PT Entrepreneur Podcast. What's going on, guys? Doc Danny here with the PT Entrepreneur Podcast. And today, super excited to chat with one of my good friends, Brett Bartholomew. These are always easy conversations. We, sh- we should have recorded the last 10, 15 minutes. It's always pre-conversation, funny stuff that we get into. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into quite a good bit of topics today. In particular, what I really realized today, I t- was telling Brett, I was on a run and um, it just hit me. I was like, man, I've never really taking a deep dive with Brett into like the, all of the nuances of how he got to where he is today. Cause you know, I, I'm familiar with your background with Exos and when it was athletes performance Institute. And I, I went there for a week long rehab mentorship with Sue Falcone when she was there. Uh, and we potentially even crossed paths in Phoenix unknowingly. Um, and it's just such a great place. And to, to go from a place like that, where it's like one of the top strength conditioning places in the country to then decide to do your own thing. is it's, it's an interesting, um, step to take and, and it's very undulating along the way. So, you know, I think for everybody that's listening to this, it's helpful sometimes to hear, um, the real story and not just like what you see on social media about like overnight success. Cause that's typically not the case. So, uh, I'm excited to dive into that today with Brett. Cause he's doing some really cool stuff. He's an author, he's an educator, he's an entrepreneur. He wrote a book called conscious coaching, which I have quite a few copies. This, this one is actually signed. Yes. Go figure. Yeah. I got a signed copy. And I think um, great with cologne too. That one is. Yes. It smells amazing. Yeah. And, and, and coming up, he's got a second book on the way. Is, is there a name to it yet or no? Uh, I, I technically, and this isn't me trying to be cool. I can't release it yet because it's like a working title. Yeah, um, cool. yeah it's part of the publish, the publisher, the big publisher game apparently on this one. So uh, there were yeah. some really concepts, but we want to make sure that nobody steals those URLs and trademarks and all that. That makes total sense. And that gives it an even more sort of cool allure to the the, the book that you can't uh, disclose yet. But either way, it's going to be awesome. Working on finishing his doctorate up. When do you when do you finish that up? Uh, we were this fits perfectly into the narrative, Danny. It was supposed to be finished this December, but because of the messy realities of life and entrepreneurship, yeah. uh, it may be March. So we are we are doing everything that we can. Turns out like trying to be a parent, there's no book on how to like successfully run a business, be a parent, do a doctorate and like write a book. Um, but if there was, I also wouldn't write that book because I don't feel like I'm successful at any of those things right now. Yeah. Um, 
but hopefully March or at the very latest by the summer. Yeah. Yeah. So either way, you're doing, you're doing a lot, dude. Like you're one of the, you're one of the most, uh, like, like hardest working people that I know in terms of just the, the sheer amount of output and, uh, you know, work that you, that you put in. Um, so, so what I, I wanted to make sure that we did though, was figure out how you got here today, because, um, you know, not that long ago, you were teaching people how to do like multi-directional movement and speed and agility and load absorption and all these, you know, all these movement, uh, elements of strength and conditioning, you know, with, uh, within the profession. So tell me this. So from the start, you, you, you get a job with Exos, right? At the time it was athletes performance Institute or athletes uh, performance Institute at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so API beautiful facility in Phoenix, like just such a, probably one of the nicest gyms I've ever been in. I love the, the, the lunch there, dude, the lunch there. Amazing. (laughs) I love that. That's I'll reach out to Deb Martell, who would have been one of the chefs there at the time and, and make sure that, you know, I'm like, listen, you may have not known this, but all these years later, this is, this is something that's going to make your day. So yeah, it was great. I told him, I was like, listen, I come here every day. I check these boxes. You give me this delicious food. I don't have to think about prepping it. It's, it's like, amazing yeah. and good for me. If I, if I were trained there, I would be an even better mediocre athlete than I actually am. That's great phrasing. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Perfect. I would be slightly better. So, okay. You're there and you know, you did tactical work. You did work there with a, a lot of the NFL guys. So, uh, that seems like a dream career. Why, why leave? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's it's loaded. I mean, I think it's, it's an even interesting story of how we, how we got there. Uh, mm. you know, and this is nice to be able to talk about this by the way, cause most time people ask about my story, they inevitably want to talk about my hospitalization and things like that, which I enjoy talking about too, but this is going to be a refreshing chat. So first of all, before we even got to athletes performance, I had worked in collegiate strength and conditioning. And so I had gone to Kansas state university, got my undergrad had, um, had done a GA, uh, at Southern Illinois University, where I got my uh, master's in motor learning and attentional focus and cueing, which later fed into my communication obsession. But my wife and I had also worked at the University of Nebraska. So, you know, before we had even one big goal of going to API was like, all right, now I have team setting experience. I want to get into the private sector. And it really would be no different than, you know, somebody that maybe worked for the government in some aspect to maybe a legal representation and then decided they want to get in the private sector of that industry. The goal was always to kind of have a more bulletproof resume because I just, I, I value autonomy and I, I didn't want a life. I mean, I spent a year of my life where somebody told me what to do in a hospital and I, I wanted to say, all right, what can I do professionally to make sure that I have maximum kind of option value? And so, you know, we were trying to get this, I, I tried to get in this position down there once and, you know, did an interview. They ended up not having that position. I had interned there to even intern there uh, because I had already graduated. You know, we basically had to like fly down to Arizona, talk this, talk the president of the company into letting us join, you know, that led to an internship, but yeah, eventually, man, like I went there and worked in Pensacola, Florida. And the thing that made API, which is a different company than Exos, I don't know that everybody would agree with that. But at the time, this was a place where Coaching was uh, very competitive and in a good way. Like anybody that worked at API, there was like this standard. If you were on the floor from the way you cued to the way you like just your overall comportment to the way you led groups, there was a standard. And so that was an addictive part of it. Really high level coaches. I mean, people that had been in the pro sport side, the Olympic side, whatever, but wanted more stability in their life would come and work at API 
and you knew that you could, you'd work at a place that you were going to get a lot of diverse folks to work with. There was going to be tremendous attention to detail and there was a standard. I, I think the thing that most people don't know too is, you know, Mark Versagan and, and, and that model was really everybody involved with that. They were really the first to put this, like the same level of focus people were putting into linear speed, they were putting into multi-direction. Like nobody had really broken down multi-directional movement, change of direction with that level of detail. And then they also wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, they provided a place where all the walls were kind of broken down between physical therapy, between training, between nutrition, like you could get really total integrated care. And I think it's, it's surprising for people to hear that because now it's so commonplace. You can go almost everywhere and you can see, okay, here's a physical therapist and they can see what athletes are doing on the floor. But for a long time, this stuff was siloed. That wasn't the reality. You know, people would go train at a gym and then they'd have a dietitian and then they'd go to their PT, you know, nobody ever really talked. And, you know, this was, this was pretty commonplace. And I don't want to speak for Mark, but I, I know that some of the goal was later on even to say, Hey, the pro athletes have a lot of tremendous resources. Could we create a place where even the average Joe or Jane could get those kinds of resources? Now I have no idea what their business model is now. I haven't been there six years. You know, I don't know any of that, but I know when I worked there is this idea that whether you were military, whether you're a professional athlete or whether you were just a high performer a daily person, you know, you could go in there and get this uh, holistic team working around you to help you perform your best. So I'll stop there just to let it breathe and elaborate where you'd like me to. Yeah, I would, I would say it was the most impressive, uh, facility that I've seen outside of, you know, really some of the professional teams or like very high end military special operations groups that, that we've worked with. But if I had to guess, like they may have modeled even some of that off of, um, off of that facility because, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just shockingly nice. It was shockingly like well put together. And I remember the, tr- the integration of the training floor even made so much sense with, uh, at the time they had a lot of baseball players that were in the off season. So they're, they're over there, they're getting some arm care work done. They're going straight into a warm up with, you know, the, the trainers, and then they're going over to like long toss stuff or, or you know, whatever their like functional specific, uh, sport movement was going to be that they were working on. And I remember that was like, this is so smart, you know, and then they had the Eagle program with all the, the military, uh, guys, which is one of the reasons why I was sent there, uh, where they're doing high level rehab multiple times a day, typically to get back to their, to, to their job post-surgery. And I just thought, I was like, man, this is such a great model. And I think a lot has actually been adapted from that, which is great. But you know, when, when you're there, this is like such a cool environment where it sounds like it's a coach. All the coaches are legit. All the coaches had very high standards when, when I was there it was very apparent. You could tell, and you know, you probably learned a ton in that environment, but at what point was it where you realized you know, it, was it that the, the culture of the company was changing and you didn't really want to go that direction? Or was it, you're just like, dude, I have to do something on my own because I have this, you know, this desire to do so. And if I don't, I'll probably have some regret around that. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to state some things up front just because people, when they transition, right there, a lot of times people don't know what goes into that and in the thought process. Somebody just feels like, oh, I've either been here for a while or this place won't pay me what I want or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, you know, what's important to note there. And the thing that I was most grateful for my time at API is I, the, the five or six years that I was there, it was like putting 20 years in a bottle from the standpoint mm-hmm. that the minute I was hired there, I was working with a combination of pro athletes, high school youth, um, surgeons from the Andrews Institute, folks that were in their fellowship program, 
uh, military, as you alluded to, whether it was, whether it was just wounded warriors or whether it was like operators that yeah. had essentially been, you know, for lack of a better term, blown up downrange. Yeah. And you had to train around some really complex surgeries, some really complex. So the amount of code switching, you know, I had just came out of collegiate strength and conditioning, which of course there's nuances between training football and tennis and golf and baseball, but now you're, they're still all college athletes, right? Now you're getting into a situation where an 8am group might be three operators and one of them might have a spinal fusion and another one might have shrapnel, you know, and another one might be a partial amputee and this and that. And then all of a sudden the next hour or hour and a half, I'm training a bunch of pro athletes. And then not only that, one time I had a group with about 10 athletes, but they were all modified, meaning one guy was healthy. Another guy was post ACL reconstruction three weeks out. Another one was post ACL reconstruction three months out. Another one. So like anything that you did, let's say the healthy athlete was doing resisted sled sprints, right? You had to seamlessly run um, a session where that person got their work in, but then you had to think of an appropriate regression for another person that couldn't do that loaded kind of sprint. So they might be just did a heavy sled push. And then another one that wasn't even ready to push and just needed to work on structural integrity and trusting the stability of that knee would be a doing a load and lift wall drill. And then another one be so and mind you, this wasn't like college where I think some people don't understand that at the college and pro level, you know, there, there's staff and then there's a lot of interns. You know, there were times where it's like you with 50 people and maybe one intern yeah. and you're expected to be able to do. So I was really grateful for those challenges. And so when I was thinking about leaving, you know, it just, it had come up, I think it was our sixth year. Um, you know, there were a number of things that had gone on in the company you know, I, I had kind of ran the, the pro sports side. I had worked on the youth side. I had gone and been a part of international education. And for the first probably three or four years, just, hey, keep your mouth shut, do the job. You know what I mean? I probably asked for a raise here or there. But eventually, like, I had a family. Like, me and my wife got married, and we wanted to have kids. And, you know, what we were making, I mean, anybody listening to this that doesn't know, you don't make a lot of money in strength and conditioning. Right. You know, coming out of there with a master's degree, um, and, and having had coaching experience, I was hired on for about $35,000, you know what I mean? And, and you're fine. That's fine. You know, but then all of a sudden then it's 40,000 then all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, we want to have kids and we're stuck at this 40 to 55,000 thing, but you're seeing people in other positions kind of make more and you can't really compare because you don't know what their stuff is. But I do know this, there came a point in time where I'd then been over there half a decade. I was trying to be very patient in the, the financial side of things. Uh, and I said, okay, listen, if you can't do that, like, what can we do? Is there a day maybe on the recovery days where I can work from home? Or I was starting to get invited to do more speaking engagements, you know, but the answer at that time was essentially, well, if you do it, then everybody's got to do it. So you can't yeah. do more speaking engagements. Then it was, uh, okay, at one point I wanted to write a book. No, you can't write a book. And so I was caught in this quagmire of like a company that I really loved, really appreciated. But the fact is, is now I needed to make more money. It wasn't like, and I want to make that disclaimer because some people are in a job one to two years and they think they're entitled to a raise or all of a sudden, Hey, I've been here three years. Give me equity. You know, this was not a situation like that, nor was that the expectation, yeah. you know, like we really wanted to play that smart. We were really grateful, but it was just a point that we wanted to have a family and we had to think about these things. Um, you know, and so it was clear that I had to make a change. The, the interesting part became then of how to handle that internally. There were some people there that it was amazing. I remember one time there was a rumor about me that I was trying to like go back to the University of Nebraska, which I love where I'm from. I love the University of Nebraska, but we were not job seeking. You know, there was rumors about this. 
the only thing that we ever came up against was there was an NFL opportunity that really would have been a financial life changer, $275,000 a year with one of my best friends. Um, But, you know, there were, there were contingencies around this too. So ultimately what made me decide, Hey, it's time for a change is my wife was kind of stuck at a position in her company. There was no real movement. I was now stuck. We'd exhausted a lot of options. We had been there a fairly long amount of time. So our, our hand was really just kind of forced to examine some other things. Hmm. So, okay. You decide I've got to, I got to do something else. And, and you're right. I mean, strength and conditioning is like athletic training. It's just not, there's not a lot of good compensation for that unless you're at a pro or division one, um, you know, big university level. So, you know, what was the next step for you? What'd you do after you decided, all right, I've got to, you know, try to figure something else out. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this goes into where salary is not even the main thing, right? Because as you alluded to, yes, pro and some division one, you make a good bid, but most people will tell you that they're golden handcuffs as well. Right. If you don't, if you don't win an NBA or NFL championship in two to three years, you're likely fired. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you go to a Nebraska or an Alabama or something like that, you don't win in a certain amount of years, you're fired. And so when you look at what some coaches do, right, the average salary in strength and conditioning is like that in education. You know, it's just, it is. You're like, you're going to have highly qualified people that don't make that much money. Um, and then a lot of folks also don't get business sense. So they don't know how to, or education. So they don't know how to manage that. So they feel like, okay, I can go one of these ways. So, you know, we looked at that. There came an opportunity where there was three things. One, stay at API. Um, at that time it was Exos and that window would have closed quickly regardless. And I knew, you know, the book wasn't something I wanted to write because, oh, I wanted to get my name out there this was something that was inside of me that had to come out. Right. It, it had to come out, right? So um, there was either stay there, take an opportunity in LA, which would have allowed me a little bit more freedom in terms of speaking. I could write a book. I could also run a facility, coach some athletes, things like that, or take the NFL gig. The trick was at that time, and this isn't something I've ever really talked about much, The I was offered by one of the individuals at the Dolphins, but they were also switching coaches at the time. Mm. So while my friend was like, dude, this is, this is good. You know, I granted, I do need to talk to the new head coach. We have not hired them yet. They could come out with something out of left field. And I'm sitting here like, I can't do that. I can't. So Exos was saying, you need to let us know by this date. The NFL position was saying, you need to let me know by this date, but by the way, we don't have anything ironclad. And then they're saying in LA, I'm thinking, ah, do I want to, I don't want to move to LA. So I had to just weigh, all right, what would future Brett want? If I went to the NFL, I'd get to work with a great friend. You know, if that money came through, you'd get the money. But by and large, I'd probably leave there just, you know, either still a strength coach or a slightly better strength coach. Maybe, you don't know. I would argue that it would be hard to say that I was going to be better because you had more diverse coaching experience working with a wide range. It was, if I moved to LA, I'm taking a massive risk. You know, I don't know this individual as well, but you know, there, there's some other things here where I'm going to get some freedom and, and how much basically do I want to bet on myself? And if I stay at API, this is kind of ticking time clock because the company is rapidly changing. So that was the tough thing. When people are like, hey, I'm scared of risk. I get it. Like this was December and I have to make this decision now. Yeah. You know. And we decided to go with LA because I thought, you know what? At the end of it, I'll, I'll have a better knowledge of business, no matter how good that goes or how poorly that goes. I'm going to have more coaching experience. I'm going to be a more well-rounded person. It's going to be more diversification on my resume. But I'll say this too. The hard thing then was, man, the minute people hear you don't like, when people hear you have an NFL opportunity, everybody's your friend. Hmm. Everybody's your friend. There was a certain portion of that population that the minute they heard I didn't take that, 
you know, now you're not the cool kid on the block anymore. You know, what the hell you decided? And, you know, that's the reality is anybody that's facing these decisions in their life, they need to know that like, hey, you're going to learn who your circle of true friends is real quick. And, and like looking at your level of risk aversion, one thing that should never come into consideration is other people's approval. Like if I can give value just right out the gate, that's that. Like that was not one thing that we worried about. Like I didn't give a shit what anybody thought of me for doing these things. I cared about what was best for us and what provide most diversification. Cause at the end of the day, if you're good at your job, you're good at your job. And why do I care? Like, but I think that's a problem. So many people chase the label. They sell out to certainty as opposed to selling out to an opportunity that's going to diversify your skill set. So does that, does that make sense? There's this kind of triple threat of decision-making. What am I going to do? And, and you've got to bet on, hey, diversify your skill set and jump into the unknown sometimes because chaos is clarity. I, yeah, I think that's, I think what most people do though, is they, the, it's uncomfortable. So they just stay. Like that, that's the reality of what I see a lot is there's discomfort in, I'm not super happy here, but it's not that bad, you know, and it's comfortable, it's safe. And they just kind of, you know, they kind of stay there. Right. So, you know, for, for you, as, as you made, as you make this adjustment, as you make this decision to leave and to not take uh, a job like with the, you know, with the dolphins, which you're right. They could have hired a new coach. You'd be like, that's not my guy. And then you're, you're gone. You know, I mean, I've seen that happen to friends of mine that are in the, you know, in the professional sports world at different, um, different teams that are, that are physical therapists, they do nothing wrong. They just get a new coach that comes in and they clean house and they send everybody's gone, you know? Um, you know, so for you, the transition to go to LA, um, that, that involved learning how to, you know, be a part of running a, running a, a practice or not a practice, but a uh, facility, it's, right? Yeah. My, yeah. my business partners were essentially Lindsay Berg, who is a world-class volleyball, has a world-class volleyball background, Brian Erlacher, right? Like you're, you're and, yeah. and just in a market. I mean, this was West Hollywood. You know, if anybody ever sees like movies where there's the Chateau Marmont, you know, and they see like literally like just anything that like we were in Hollywood. So here my wife and I are, you know, and, and we're pretty, we're both Nebraskans. We're pretty bare bones people. Like we're not really into the glitz, the glamour, whatever, you know, but it was kind of crazy. And all of a sudden we're living in like Century City, Beverly Hills. I, you know, she had to stay behind and, and like help sell the house and pack that up. She must have driven back and forth to LA like six times with the dogs. Damn. You know, we had to find an apartment. We ended up paying $3,600 a month for a 900 square foot apartment that didn't even come with a microwave. <laughs> you know, and then not, not only that talking about certainty, I basically was given two options and I can't remember the exact numbers, but one was like a higher salary with, you know, very lower, a level of like, uh, uh, what's the word on commission and yeah. equity or a significantly lower salary with a higher percentage of commission and equity. And that was a no brainer, you know, like if I'm going to make this risk, like I'm, I'm going there for ownership. And so, you know, I just remember I had lived with somebody else while we were looking for a place for like six weeks, living out of a suitcase. You're going in there, you have a staff that hears like, you're the new guy and a co-owner. They're all kind of eyeballing you, you know, like you're back in this situation of like, you know, for six years, you had kind of built a reputation, you know, within uh, your previous organization. Now you're an outsider. But, you know, just one more thing that I think helps people that I learned after the fact, and we share this in one of our courses is people really need to reevaluate what commitment means. Hmm. You know, like whether it's people saying with organizations or in relationships, right? Like commitment is a choice led by both 
rational and emotional aspects of, of our decision-making, but here's three different levels of commitment. This can help people right out of the bat, all right? There's three types of commitment and you will know if you need to leave or make a change or whatever based on where you are here. So one type of commitment, like why somebody stays in a relationship or organization is what's called affective, affective commitment. They want to, I want to be in this relationship, okay? And I'll repeat these. Another form of commitment is normative commitment. Normative commitment is, I feel like I ought to. So it could be, well, this was the first company to hire me. They gave me a chance. So I feel like I owe it to them, right? Mm-hmm. Or, hey, well, I met, I met you know, I, I understand my partner's abusive, but, you know, they, they helped pull me out of a dark place in my life once. And so, you know, whatever. Then there's continuance. I feel like I have to. You know, I talked to a buddy the other day and he was like, I can't leave my job right now. My significant other just lost theirs. Mm. And it doesn't have to be that dire. Somebody could just feel like, I feel like I have to because there's no other options. Yeah. It could be a, a manifestation of imposter phenomenon. So you have to analyze, are you staying in a situation because you want to, you feel like you ought to, or you feel like you have to? The answer is obvious. Like you need to leave if you feel like you have to or ought to, unless there really is a circumstance where like, no, if you leave, you couldn't support your dying mother or, you know, but you still need to know where you're at, right? If you can't leave a certain situation because you have to support your dying mother, even though you're not happy, at least knowing that you're in this continuance aspect of commitment helps you realize that, hey, whenever that situation resolves itself, either, you know, she gets better or unfortunately she passes. Now you need to take the next step. You know, and and this was a situation where like I did not leave um, because I just wanted to, or I felt like I ought to. It got to a point where like I had to. It was clear you are not going to grow. We're not going to give you the opportunity to grow. This is what the job is. Take it or leave it. So yeah. does that make sense, or is there anything there that I made too confusing? No, I think that's super helpful. I mean, in fact, and for us, most of the people that listen to this podcast are you know they're clinicians, they're they own a business or they're thinking about starting a business. And I think that framework right there of a lot of people feel very loyal to companies, um, you know, and if a company treats you really well and has you know, done the right thing for you as an employee, then there's a lot of reasons to feel loyal to, to that, to that company because entrepreneurship is, there's no guarantee. It's very, um, you know, it's very sketchy, especially early on it's, it's a massive amount of work. Like they always laugh when people, you know, when they'll reach out to me and, and they're like, Hey, I thought I was going to like make a lot more money. And it seems like I'm working twice as hard to make half as much right now. And, uh, I'm like, yeah, that's how it goes. Whenever you start a business, like it's, it's hard, it's hard to get that, to get that going. And really like, it would be so much better for people if they could go in the lens of, I want to do this, you know, but most people it's not, it's that they have to, they feel like they, their hand is, you know, is, is forced to be able to, to do that, you know? So, you know, I, I think as, as people realize that and they think to themselves, all right, I feel like I have to make a change now after, you know, hearing you put that together in such a s- simple and easy to understand way, you know, what would you say for you when, when you realize that when you had to, what did you, what kind of mode did you go into? Was it like, Hey, here's what's important to me or is, Hey, here's literally the best opportunity to succeed and I'll figure the rest out. Like what, what did you decide to make your decisions based off of? Yeah. Well, I, I think what one was, and there's another decision coming, right? The story's not done yet. 
Um, but just at that point, it was, it was all based on growth and option value. We're like, I, I very much tried to stay yeah. with my old organization because I, I valued it, you know? And that's where I said, okay, if salaries off the table and titles are like, what's the zone of possible agreements, but there's just no wiggle room. You know, my staff knows that, you know, while money's finite and we're still, you know, a young organization, we may not be able to pay them all exactly what they want, but they do have commission opportunities. They can work remotely. You know, there's so many other options. They just need to be creative, yeah. you know? And, and then it was just like, I investing in you guys, like invest in me. Like, I don't agree with this whole idea of like, you know, and they had a reason for it. So I'm not criticizing, you know, API's decisions at that time. It's just not one based on my circumstance now that I agree with, but I can understand in different contexts why this makes sense. At the time I was there, everything was like, you know, you you couldn't do those speaking opportunities or whatever because there's this idea that then everybody would want it. And there's this it's kind of fairness to everybody's situation, you know, or you couldn't have a brand, you couldn't have a website, you couldn't have this. They didn't really want to like talk about coaches or have them because you know there's transients, right? Like some people get there and they leave. Yeah. You know, and so I get that part. You know, on the way we run our business now is right now, you know, the people on our staff, it's me, my wife Liz, Becca. Allie and Nate. And that might change, you know, in four months or three years or whatever. But right now that's our staff. I want people to know Becca. I want people to know Allie. I want Becca to go get speaking events. I want people to, to want to get on uh, a mentoring call with my wife. Like, I don't want to be the main person, you know? And also like we're creating a community here. I think that if Allie all of a sudden got a $10,000 speaking gig, Becca wouldn't sit there and be like, oh man, you know, I, that should have been me that, like, if anything, like, all right, that should inspire you. Yeah. You know, like I always say, Hey, I want us all to eat from the same pantry. I don't want, this isn't called Brett of coaching, you know? So like, I never understood this idea that like, we don't want to build your brand under our umbrella. And by the way, that wasn't even my thought then. My thought then was, I just want to make some extra money. And I want to do something by the way that I feel really passionate about. Like it's burning me to get this book out. Um, and I'm not going to let my job drop off. Like this is every now and then. So I think you had to look at option value. You think you had to look at like future you, what would be the most bulletproof kind of aspect of that. Um, and then you also have to consider your age. I knew if I was going to make a move like that, you know, this was, this, what would I have been? I would have been in my late twenties, uh, like very early thirties. I'm 36 now. Like, that that's the time of your life you need to do those things. Not that you shouldn't take risk later on, but it's just like investing. You yeah. know what I mean? Early on, like if you're investing, if you're in like your 20s and 30s and most of your money's in bonds, that's a little weird. You know what I mean? Like you, you've got to have a higher risk portfolio. So even, even if a situation had gone horrendously wrong, better that it goes wrong later in my 20s or early 30s where I have time to pivot. So those were some things that I looked at. I didn't really worry about where are we living. Otherwise, I never would have chosen LA because um, it was always going to be something that like, hey, it's not like we're necessarily going to retire there. Uh, but those were a few of the things. And then I would say, you know, once once the situation in LA, uh, like we, we had always looked at, all right, how long how long are we going to be here? That business model changed after we were there a year. Mm -hmm. the, one of the owners was like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. That was not what we signed on for. So it was clear that, you know, there are some changes there that we needed to move on. We felt like we had done our job. We had kept our word. Okay, now what do we do? This was a true burn the boats thing. Because now this is a, okay, we, we've both moved enough. We've done GAs. We've done internships. We've taken a job. We've moved for promotions. We've done this. Now this is a big move. You know, this is a big, big, big move. And there were many decisions to be made. 
because my wife loved her job in LA. So I had to say, all right, if we're, if we're leaving again and the situation dictates this, this is a move where we're really putting a stake in the ground. And man, you know, she thankfully could work from anywhere. Um, you know, I kind of just burned the boats and started writing this book. I was training some people on the side. So like I was training from five in the morning to 11 at night. And then I would come home, eat whatever, write conscious coaching from like 1130 to 2 a.m., you know, and it was like, all right, now, now we're rolling. So that was the real scary one because now there's, there's no, we weren't going to a situation where there was a salary waiting for me. This was, we are going out on our own. And mind you, we still fought stuff. I remember that time we got a call from another organization that was like, would you want to work here? Sure. But you know, I'm writing a book, I'm doing this. Oh, you'd have to kill the book if you want this job. So this was stuff that only strengthened my resolve and made that decision easier, Danny, because everywhere I was going, when we were trying to bet on ourselves, you know, there was somebody reminding me of why we were doing that yeah. you know, at, at the time. And I'll be very frank. This was with the UFC. This was before they had created their UFC PI and all this stuff. And there was a headhunter that kind of reached out and they just said, we want to coach not a brand. We're not interested in you if you, if you're writing a book. And yeah. I just, I remember calling a friend of mine, that's a lawyer. And he goes, how ridiculous if I wrote a book and it did well, I'd be made partner. You know what I mean? That's part of sometimes, you know, strength and conditioning based industry is like, oh, if you have a brand, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And that was what we were trying to get out of is we believe that's a very zero sum, toxic, limiting thing. And that's another tip. Like it's a no brainer, guys. If you're in an industry where you are being controlled at every turn, people have very limited ideas of growth and they want to define you, you need to, you need to understand where to roll the dice. So, Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, for you, they're, you're just, you know, for some people, that's exactly what they're looking for. You know, they want, they want a job. They want to a, a job with a company that they don't care about, you know, writing a book. They don't care about any of the things that are important to you, but it's the wrong setting for you. It's the parents, right? As you look back and, and uh, you think about the book because it's self-published. It's not like you thought it, I mean, maybe you thought it was going to do well, but you didn't know. And it's a ton of your time. It's never it's know. A, yeah, it's an expensive thing to do, both opportunity cost, but actual cost to go through that. And so for you, what year was it that the book came out? Uh, the book came out in April 2017. Okay. Because when we met, you were still training athletes. Like in, yeah. you know, in Atlanta, I, I, I remember, you know, meeting you for the first time at St. Pius at the, at the high school, um, you know, went through a little... Uh, training session with you, record a podcast on the field for Doc and Jock, which yeah. is like one of the actual last episodes that their podcast that we had uh, before we shut that project down. And, you know, I, I, I just, I remember thinking like, oh, cool. Like this guy, high level strength coach. That's awesome. Somebody I can refer people to that they come to me if they're looking for like strength and conditioning stuff. And your trajectory is so different now from, from then. Right. And I, I know even like looking at the Atlanta area, thinking about starting a, starting a gym there, like a brick and mortar gym, like what took you from, you know, the coach path, even owning your own facility and going that route, training athletes and training high level athletes, which a lot of people would look at and be like, this is awesome. This is a dream, right? I'm training all these NFL guys. And from there you decide to make a complete, you know, shift in a lot of ways to what you're doing today. Like why, why make that change? Yeah. And by the way, for anybody that doesn't know, when Danny went through that training session, like this dude moves so fast that it looks like he's going 300 miles an hour when he's just sitting there. 
you know, I just never seen the raw athleticism. I mean, I, I just think, you know, whether it's basketball, LeBron's on notice, yeah. I mean, like he's just uncanny. Listen, so I want to speak to your athleticism one now. That, that was when I knew I actually had to get out of coaching athletes yeah. is because I was like, nobody I could ever coach could do this. Yeah. So what am I, what am I doing? And I just, I remember going, I went home and I cried. Yeah. Well, look, the problem is uh, I, I weigh uh, 50 to a hundred pounds less than need be for most professional sports. So my, uh, my dainty movements that you got to see and my, uh, you know, uh, slight agility, uh, is about all, all I, all I had, but I will say if, if coach Joe is listening to this, if, if we're in a combine, I I'll take him out. He's, yeah. he's going, he's getting picked number two. Listen, not a flex. I, I don't mean this as a flex, but I trained more than a thousand professional athletes over the course of my career thus far. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I still don't know anybody that could have kept up with you, you know, Frank. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah going, okay. going back to that, like the first step was like us thinking like, where are we going to go? You know? And, and there yeah. was some ego here. Cause it was scary. I'm just like, you know, now the reputation thing fed into it because, you know, you'd built a reputation for yourself. I'm very much a head down respect the craft kind of person, you know, so like you, you value that reputation. But when you, when you move once people are like, Oh, that makes sense. Even if it's not what we thought you'd go do, um, we can respect that. And the ones that get it, you know, are a little bit more mature, get it. Don't take the flashy job, take a job that's going to give you more kind of, um, you know, just diversification of a skill set. but you move, you move again. People are now like, Oh, you good. You know, you like, it just, that scares some people. You know, they're just kind of, they don't, especially when it's not the norm for that field. And so, you know, we were looking at that and I'm like, all right, we're going to open up a gym, do this our way. Uh, let's look at places. And I remember we looked at Texas. We had looked, we loved Arizona, but out of like, out of respect, basically to API, who I, I valued, although their leadership was changing dramatically, yeah. you know, I got along with a lot of their leadership, but there's a person here or there that like is new and didn't even know you. And next thing you know, you're getting told like, Hey, if you move here, there's like, uh, you know, you can, uh, there's a non-compete and you're like, I wouldn't even like, like I would ever open my thing next to you. Like you're just, yeah. I'm like, all right, there seems to be drama there. So we're not going to do Arizona. Didn't want to live in Florida. I'd already lived in Florida, Texas. So we're like, you know what? Atlanta. I had just spoken there not that long ago. It was only, only two hours from where our parents were. It was the busiest airport in the world. And by this time, my speaking, because a book had come out by the grace yeah. of God, it had, I mean, at one point, and again, you know, you know how I mean this, but anybody listening, this is me stating this out of surprise and to orient you to the story, not me saying like I'm Proust or some Pulitzer winner, but I, and I have the screenshots to prove it. We were out selling Tony Robbins and Dan Rather and Phil Knight's shoe dog. Yeah. So for, for a book that somebody at one point in time, a publisher who only reached out to me because a friend asked him to was like, dude, nobody's going to be interested in a book about communication, let alone from like, what industry are you in? Strength and conditioning. Mm. Like the greater world has no idea what that is. Don't waste my time. So like to your point, no, we had no idea it would do this. So the, the Atlanta had the world's busiest airport, meaning you could literally get anywhere with a direct flight, just about, I'm like, there's strategic things here. For sure. Military hub, baseball, NFL, we're locked in. So we get there and we like, we moved everything by ourselves. Like we, we were in like Decatur in the middle of the night. We get this house that didn't even have running water. The people forgot to turn on our water. We had to go to Walmart in the middle of DeKalb County at like 1am to get an air mattress to sleep on. Just the move went very, as most people's moves do. Right. I mean, like if a move goes well, that was by accident. Moves don't go well. 
But bottom line is we started looking at buildings several months into it. You know, I, I, I had athletes I was training out here just because there were plenty that left in the off season. We, we were about to buy just this massive building in a really amazing part of town. And we had figured out the numbers and all this, it worked. And then it basically, we got outbid by a subsidiary of Coca-Cola that wanted to use it. I mean, man, we had blueprints. Mm-hmm. We were literally going there to sign and the guy was like, somebody outbid you five times your price. So we're like, uh, that's not going to work. So then another coach that was going to come kind of be my head coach, he had left the NFL. He got cold feet and was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, I'm not, I'm out. You know, so I'm like, well, we're not. We're going to look at another building and another and another and another. And, you know, we either couldn't find the spot that we wanted. And so around the time I met you, a friend had said, hey, you know, I, I work at a large Catholic high school. A lot of our equipment doesn't get used a certain percentage of the day. I used to work in college football. I'd give anything to be around high level athletes again. Why don't you train your guys here? So I was like, great. I'll donate to the school. I'll train my guys there. It was a lifesaver. I'm like, why would I pay for a brick and mortar when I have to do this? Yeah. And then a friend of mine just said, this might be the best thing that ever happened to you. And I said, why? And he goes, that book continues to take off. So does your speaking. You might want to think twice about opening a gym. So then Danny, it was just a matter of like seeing where things went. Like I loved coaching athletes, still would do it on a concierge basis. It's got to be very, you know, it's got to be, but it was very clear that what I loved more than anything was coaching. Because coaching is not a term that is resolved for problem or for sports or fitness. Coaching is to guide, to teach, to mentor, to lead. And there were just more and more opportunities coming up with companies like Wells Fargo and Microsoft and Facebook and other things. And it was clear where this was going. And people were bringing me in to talk about the messiness of dealing with people, the messiness of dealing with personalities. So then it became all right. Do I shed this old skin, this reputation? I built like for 15 years, I worked to get this reputation of myself and to hone this craft, but now I have to be comfortable evolving. And it really was that conversation of what do you love? Yes, I do think training is a tool to teach people what they're capable of. But the thing I loved most was coaching. And the thing I found most fascinating was people. Hmm. After that, it was a no-brainer, burn the boats. Art of coaching was built. And we decided that we are gonna be a company that helps individuals from every profession navigate the messy realities of leadership in life. And we never really have looked back and we've continued to just try to scale from there. Well, it's, it's interesting when you really look at like the skill development that you've had in your career, like, and how helpful that is with even what you're doing now, right? Because you're, you're, you're coaching people still, you're just doing it in a slightly different fashion and, and a with way a higher level, by the way, coaching people yeah. I have found has been way harder, you know, not, and not to oversimplify, right. Strength and conditioning, athletic training, physical therapy. These are all very nuanced things and understanding of physiology, biomechanics, just stress adaptation, whatever. But I have found that training people, whether that's executives, whether that's other coaches, training people on how to navigate negotiations and hard conversations and power dynamics is the hardest coaching I've ever done. And also mm-hmm. the most fulfilling. Yeah. I mean, there's so many more factors associated with that, but even looking at like, I mean, anybody even listening to this, right. I, I, I think that you probably undervalue the skills that you've developed and in, in our profession in particular and strength and conditioning, there is a, there's a lot of overlap there with talking to people, 
uh, about things they need to do to achieve a goal that they're trying to to achieve. And the development of a plan, the development of like reasoning as to why, like logically creating frameworks around what needs to happen in order for those things to come together. But ultimately, it also comes down to them believing that you're right. And frankly, that's sales. And when I talk to people, you know, that we work with, one of the bigger problems they have is I'm like, I've never learned how to sell. I'm not, you yeah. know, selling, selling makes me feel dirty. Like, I don't want to talk about money. And I tell them all the time, like, you're literally selling people on your plan of care constantly about them, why they need to do dead bucks. Like you're literally t- like selling them on that. You can do that in so many other ways. So I think the transfer of skill from these, these, these uh, disciplines, these professions to other ones is, is very, very valuable. Um, even talking to people that have software companies that are, that are like employing physical therapists because they're natural problem solvers. They're, they're very organized or multitaskers. You know, they think in like logical frameworks and, and, uh, they're great communicators, great communicators, right? Like those are all things that are great, whether it's in our profession or another profession. So, you know, I think the 15 years that you spent, I mean, think about that. Like if you hadn't done that, there's no way you could have done what you're doing with art of coaching. You, you wouldn't have had the, the capacity, the skill to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think people just, again, have to remember to your point that these, these skills transfer, you know, periodization of programs and all that goes hand in hand with periodizing people, periodizing yeah. business plans. You know, if a certain thing in your business isn't going well, you got to look at regressions. If it goes really well, you got to look at progressions and we call that scaling in business. Right. Um, and, and to your point, yeah, it's the, the sales thing is an interesting thing that comes up quite a bit. Um, you know, we, we just gave a presentation on this. I just gave a presentation down uh, in Austin, Texas about this. I think some people just need to remember, like they have to get off their high horse about the stigma of selling, right? Like yeah. that, that moral high ground is very expensive because they don't realize that you sell somebody, like you said, every day on the value of something, whether it's an idea, uh, the value of a resource, behavior change. Hey mom, you should get more sleep. Uh, hey dad, you yeah. should be more active. Like selling is information, uh, like you're sharing information and you're guiding. And so one thing we told people is like, you need to quit confusing an action with an identity, because maybe you had a bad sales experience, maybe you have an unhealthy attitude towards money. But if you have a resource or you have information, which is a resource that could impact somebody's life in a positive way and help them, you have a responsibility to tell them about that. You know, but on one hand, somebody will be like, oh, I don't know. But then on the other hand, they'll be like, oh, you should try this restaurant I went to the other night. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, yeah. I'm out. You sell me on this restaurant or this movie I need to see, but you're saying that you don't want to like tell people about your service. You know, it's like well, one of our groups said this morning, it's like saying, I want to be the best coach or practitioner that nobody knows about. Oh, and by the way, you're dumb if you don't find me on your own. Right. You know, that's just kind of ridiculous. But to your point that it's also not easy because a lesson I learned in that is, uh, you know, I was in this interesting quagmire now of there's not, I mean, how many strength coaches do you know have crossed over? It's, uh, it's not as easy. Not to, many. Right. It's not as easy to think about as like military that have crossed over into leadership or doctors or academics, right? People like Adam Grant. And so I was in this really weird place where I was forced to get good at selling and marketing because I had to help people understand, especially in a name like Art of Coaching, there were some times I wasn't getting corporate gigs because somebody thought I was a fitness guy. Yeah. You know, which even if I was, that's like, even if they were halfway right, like strength and conditioning is not fitness, you know? But then on the other hand, there were some people in strength and conditioning that were like, are you still one of us? And so mm. we're trying to find this way of saying, hey, we're art of coaching. No, we're not selling training or anything. Like we, I happen to have a background in strength and conditioning, but really my background is in coaching people and we're doing this. So then it was navigating, all right, you know, now my doctorate, as you mentioned too, is on kind of power dynamics and communication, 
we kind of had to make it clearer what we did, what we don't do, who we are, who we aren't. And this was a, a multi-year marketing process. This was just understanding that if you are crossing over and doing those things, there's nuances there that you have to manage about perception, but you're going to be forced to sell because otherwise you can't complain when people don't choose you. They don't understand the difference that you provide. And, you know, if, if we want to go down that, you know, no, we can more because we give people a lot of those tips, but it's something you're extraordinary at. I don't, I don't think there's anybody that is a better natural salesperson than you are. Um, and you do it through relationship building. You do it through making them feel comfortable, making them feel informed. And you also don't force it. Yeah. You know, and I think if people just understand that it's, it's relaxed guidance, it's guided discovery. It is relationship building. It's being, you know, you're, you're just trying to help them think through some things. And I think you, you've been invaluable in terms of the guidance that you've given me. And it's just, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's as effortless watching you sell as it is like watching Lady Gaga sing. It's very, weird. <laughs> you know, it's that, thank you for the compliment, but you know, what's interesting about that is I, um, you know, I once had, uh, a, a mentor, I was going through, um, sales training, uh, program and I can't remember really much of what they said, except for one thing that really stuck with me. And it was, you have to imagine that you are uh, the assistant buyer. Imagine that you're taking your mom somewhere and you're helping her make a, a, an informed decision. I, I think of like, if I was taking my mom to a physical therapist and and I'm I'm sitting there with her and I'm like, okay, Here's what he's saying. Here's here. I don't know if I agree with that or yeah, he's spot on. I know this sounds maybe like something that you you've never heard before, but this is accurate. And this is, you know, I agree with that. And I want to make sure that I help her make the right decision. Right. And every, ever since then, um, you know, when, whether it's in the clinic or it's uh, it's, it's a potential client that we're working with on our business side, I think that uh, you have to disassociate yourself from the outcome and treat it as you're the assistant buyer because one of the mistakes that I think I see, and you probably have seen this yourself. Like if you're talking to somebody and you're like, man, this mentorship program I have, is going to kill it for you. You got to do this. And they don't do it. It's very easy for us to take that personally. And, yeah. and it's like, did I do something wrong or to get angry? Maybe it's like, what don't they understand? They get frustrated. And, and that doesn't help anything at all because that their decision could have so many other factors that have nothing to do with you. So I always think if, man, if I, and being a good assistant buyer, I give them the best uh, information, the most uh, accurate, high integrity, you know, option that I can. And it's up to them to decide whether they agree with what I, you know, think they should do or they shouldn't. And I tell you what, I think that's something that actually for a lot of people, if they struggle with sales and they feel weird about it, it takes a lot of that away when you're really just trying to help another person. And they actually, I think, feel much better uh, in that interaction because you know when somebody's selling you hard, right? Like, And if you catch yourself doing that, you might as well just stop because you're ruining the, our relationship capital more than anything. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I'd be interested. What have you found with selling now? Because you have you know, sizable coaching programs, different courses and all kinds of things. You've done a lot of selling, you know, over the last few years, what have you found that has helped you? If, if there's anything like, you know, that's like a golden nugget, somebody could take away as far as that's concerned. Yeah. The, the biggest thing is what's helped me. And granted, uh, it's helped me because I'm interested in human behavior. This is kind of my life now is yeah. understanding consumer psychology better. Um, understanding that, 
even if you make what you do extraordinarily simple to understand, and by the way, most people don't do that. We have an activity yeah. we do at our brand builder course called who is your daddy and what does he do? I love that I, reference, by the way. I, I made that reference the other day in Arnold accent and the person didn't know what I was talking about. And I got the weirdest look. Yeah. And so anybody that doesn't know, you know, this is uh, like uh, the kid brings his dad to school and like they're, or he's talking about what his parents do and it's toddlers, you know, trying to speak to what their parents do. Well, that's analogous because, you know, when you're trying to sell yourself the value of your service or whatever, you want to make sure that there's a cognitive ease to it, that people don't have to think too hard. So many people, they say, what are you doing? They say, blah, 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 blah. No, no. You need to think of it like that simple. And so we have an improv exercise where people that think they know what they do and are good at describing it have to stand up and basically talk to somebody like who has no concept of this and explain what they do simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler. Like one of the kids in kindergarten cops, like my dad helps people understand their emotions and makes the bad ones go away. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's simple. Now, um, Understanding consumer psychology in the standpoint that even if you do make it simple, people sometimes like it, it comes down to timing, right? It comes down to environment. It comes down to the fact that perception of, of anything is subjective, hmm. right? Like there's going to be some people like it, it becomes easier not to take these things personally when you realize there is a segment of the population that really does think Little Caesars pizza is amazing. Yeah. You know, and then you could take them to a chef driven, like, you know, Italian brick oven flown over from, you know, Sicily, like whatever, uh, like wherever, and they, they would hate it. So you could have the best of the best of the best of the best, but we live in a world where the norm is that perception of anything in value is subjective. Some people like restaurants or places just because they met their significant other there or their dad took them there. There's nothing you could do. I think you also have to remember the teacher appears when the student is ready, right? So like, that's where you have to play the long game. That's the best business yeah. advice, right? And um, another guy was like, yeah, but I feel like I do that. And I give so much away for free. And my mom always says like, you know, why buy the milk when you're getting the cow for free? I go, well, that's the assumption that the cow only produces milk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I always tell people if our free shit's this good, imagine what our paid stuff is like. Yeah. So it, there, there are millions of, like I would say, if anybody is interested in the deeper dive answer, the consumer psychology We'll, we'll share some resources on that, but that's a two-day course. But man, I mean, there are some people that their stuff doesn't sell well just because the entire process of somebody navigating their site and getting to checkout sucks, right? And, yeah. and people either, people buy things for one of two reasons. The same thing that you can imagine and we've talked about. They either go towards pleasure or they're running away from pain. Yeah. The fancy term is eudaimonic, which is more self-actualization longer term, I'm investing in a long-term outcome, buy once, cry once, or hedonic. This is something that because we're all little pleasure sacks is going to make me feel better right now. You know, and by the way, you can have both. You should have a process. You should have a service that is fills that eudaimonic need, but feels hedonic in terms of them purchasing that, getting that. You see that with like Apple, the clean branding and whatever, that's a hedonic. Oh, this is clean. This is sharp. This is simple. The AirPods pair seamlessly. An idiot could do it. But it's eudaimonic in the sense that generally you treat those things well, it's going to last you a long time. Yeah. So we can get into that. I'll, I'll nerd out for an hour on human psychology and, and consumer psychology. But that's those are some pieces that I just urge people to think of before they take those things uh, too seriously or crumble. It's a complex process 
It cannot be resolved down to an algorithm. So you got to be willing to play chess, not checkers when it comes to sales and business. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure sack is all I took away from that. Yeah. You, <laughs> Just we're all funny little pleasure sacks. You got to make sure that you like give us our little like, I mean, but think about that, right? Like if, if I have the choice between two apps in the same service, I'm using the one that's easier to navigate, more visually appealing and simpler. When in doubt, make what you do simpler. When in doubt, make it a more enjoyable process. Like this is why I don't like the whole idea of funnels. Yeah. Funnels are like, oh, as if it ends when the customer is bought from you. No. You know what I mean? We send people handwritten notes with wax seals, right? That There's a hedonic element to that. And there's this, you know, so you've got to evaluate every aspect of your business and say, how am I addressing the pleasure sack part of it and the long-term value part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the other big thing that, that, uh, is challenging for people. I know this is the case in the strength and conditioning profession, and it's definitely the case in, in, uh, the physical therapy profession is oftentimes we have a really challenging relationship with money because it is a business of, it is a profession of service to somebody else. And we are in the business of helping people like achieve goals, achieve physical goals, get out of pain and get back to things that they like to do. And and re- the reality for most people in our profession that are truly, you know, really enjoy the the work is that they would do it for free if they didn't have a mortgage, they didn't have bills and all the things they had to do. So I find that it's challenging for them to disassociate from that and then to put a dollar assignment on like what they're, they're worth. And What's interesting is that the the consumer puts a much higher value on what we actually do and and our unique understanding and unique skill set than the actual clinician does, the specialist does. They downplay what they're actually worth. It's such a such a hard thing to balance. And you know, I think once they realize that they're worth more than that, they start to make that adjustment. But that also plays into what their upbringing was, whether they came from, you know, a lot of money and they never talked about it because it wasn't the thing that you did, or they came from, from very little money. They never had enough. So they always feel scarce with it. And they're, they're, they have a very, uh, you know, negative relationship. Like they're, there's never enough and it's, and, and they're losing it. And, and then you throw that into starting a business and it becomes a really challenging thing for a person to be able to accept the fact that like, this is just an exchange of value. This is an exchange of trust. Um, this is how we quantify it, you know, for, for the things that they're, they're getting in exchange for what we're doing. And, you know, I, I think that's a really, really hard thing to do. Have you found anything? I'm sure that with, especially with strength coaches, they've gone through similar things and maybe even yourself, like your relationship with money, like how have you helped people reframe that and, and really get over that? Yeah. I mean, I think you talked about the exchange of values. Interesting. Uh, that's a huge piece. I, I think to the, the best arguments are the simplest ones. You know, I wish that um, I could go to the bank or, or any organization that sends me a bill or, you know, whether it's a loan or, or my electricity bill and say, Hey, uh, I understand that I, I have to pay you, but I'm in my profession for the right reasons. Doesn't that count for something? Yeah. You know, it just, I'm sorry. That's not how the world works, right? Economics are a basic principle, um, you know, and money is a tool. And the the fact is, is it's funny. I, I, I pay $88 a month for garbage disposal. You know, like I have to pay a fuel, sur- so I have to pay a fuel surcharge on top of what it costs to do recycling and trash collection. Everything in life has a cost and exchange, like in all these things. The re- Here's the reality, Danny. I'll make it real simple. What we have found, and there's research to support this, is generally people, um, I want to be delicate in how I say this, but also straightforward. 
people that generally have issues with money, it's a bigger confidence issue in themselves. Hmm. You know, it's a bigger confidence issue in themselves. When they say, what should I charge? People want an algorithm for certainty on that because they don't realize that these things are, are made up, right? Like, yes, you could say, well, let's look at comps. Let's look at this. You could get very surgical about those things. That's fine. But the reality is, is if you don't know at all, you just need to ask yourself, what do you value your time at? Right. What is the what is the opportunity cost of your time? What do you value yourself at? I mean, there's somebody that I know that's brilliant that charges like $35 an hour and they have a doctorate. And I'm like, what did it cost you to get this information? You right. know, like I, I I tell somebody one time, I'm like, it's real simple. I got four thousand dollars of bad advice one time, and I was on a call for like two hours with a trademark attorney. I'm like, it's very easy for me to warrant, you know, $600 in a phone call if I know that I can save you that money right off the bat. So I think yeah. a couple of things, take, just taking the pressure off of people, always come up with different pricing options, at least two to three, because this goes hand in hand with just good business practice. Like, it doesn't matter if you have the best service. If your messaging is off and you're hard to understand, nobody's going to care. If you are too absolutist, about what you're charging and you don't have options, whether that's a low barrier offering, a middle offering, a higher tier, or, you know, you at least have to have two or three options or you have to have different services. Now I understand that there's this YouTube market out there that quote unquote Kang makers that is telling people just do one thing, charge the hell out of it and run, run a bunch of ads and you'll be a gazillionaire. I, I great. That's work that works for some people. I don't think that there's long-term economics out of that that necessarily work for everybody. You know, people just have to like look around and say, what's my relationship with money like? Is that tied to my confidence? Am I being smart about what the second and third year order consequences are? And a story to solidify that is one time when I did not know what my time was worth, somebody asked me to go teach a weekend clinic. And I was like, cool. And he's like, well, how much would that cost? I'm like, well, $800. And he goes, buddy, you married? And I go, yeah, why? And he goes, you want to stay married? I said, yeah, why? And he goes, you might want to consider charging a bit more than that. Yeah. He's like, because I have a feeling you're going to end up doing a lot more of this. And if you're leaving your family for $800, when I'm going to have you teaching from eight to five, both days, you're not going to be married long. So I had to go back and think about that, you know, and then I had to get, I had to get clear about that when, when people wanted me to, it, there's a time of year, Danny, where it's three times as much for me to come speak. And if somebody said, well, how do you warrant that? You spoke, you know, for, for this guy at this time, we have a very clean and clear document that says, Hey, like there's a couple things that impact the quote you're going to get time of year, distance traveled, obviously the deliverables, all these things. And one guy was like, well, I don't understand why time of year matters. I go try booking a hotel in the off season in Phoenix versus the end season. Yeah. It's different. You know what I mean? Like try, try booking a last minute flight, try doing these things. I go, it's no different, but I was able to do that math and say, okay, if I leave and I'm gone a week and I normally train 20 athletes and I can make, uh, 1800 to 2000 a month per that. I break that down. It's really easy to know what I have to charge, you know, so people can be as literal as they want, or they can literally throw a dart at a starting point. The most important thing is that you back it up. But here's the final point. Most people are not scared to charge what they're worth. They're scared. They can't deliver it. Oh yeah. And I, and I know that because somebody said that in our, several people have said that in our audience are like, listen, I know what I should charge, but I'm scared shitless that I can't live up to those expectations and that I'll let somebody down. That's a confidence issue. Well, what a good reason to do it though. I mean, I always thought about that with any of our businesses with, you know, with what we charge. It's like, if, if I'm charging what I feel like I should, um, I feel a sense of pressure to yeah. 
get outcomes that I I want the our clients to to achieve like that. But I want that. Like I I prefer that because it makes our team work so much harder to make sure we're doing the right things for them to where the only variable that we can't necessarily take complete ownership over is if they're willing to do the work that we know they need to do. But the the <coughs> the challenge the 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 benefit to that I guess you should say is if somebody's paying something that is considered a lot to them, they're going to do the work because they have skin in the game, right? They're they're literally they're paying attention far more because it's not like a waste of money to them. It's an easy thing for them to pay for. It's this in many people's um, you know, experience, it's the most expensive thing they've ever invested in besides their education. Yeah. One, if you, by the way, if, if any, it's funny, if, if anybody thinks that hiring a professional is expensive, try hiring an amateur, but yeah, yeah. To, to your point, when somebody on my staff, uh, they're no longer on our staff, but early days was like, somebody paid us $36,000 for a year long retainer on something. And he said, don't you feel bad? I go feel bad. I used to pray every night that I'd be one of the best coaches on the planet. That's a silly prayer by default, because you know, you everything's subjective and even like, but the point was, is I wanted to be one of the best at this craft. I go, what better way to test my metal than to accept a challenge like that? And then make that person feel, my goal is to make that person feel like they should have paid me 150 grand. Right now. It's like, if, if you're not willing to rise to that challenge, that's like a musician saying that you're not cool from, you know, you don't want to go from playing in the ranch bowl to Wembley stadium. Yeah. You know what I mean? You want that pressure. Um, uh, one more example that might be helpful. Somebody was like, well, I feel like basically what I'm charging for, you know, one of the things they were charging the most for was a convenience oriented thing in their business. And I said, listen, like people are willing to pay a premium for convenience. Like, I don't know if people realize this, but like during the late 1990s, like one of the examples of like technologies for music distribution was like Napster and, you know, all these other things, BearShare, LimeWire, right? Like you could get music online at no cost. And a lot of people like really availed themselves to that option. And, and if you remember like Microsoft Zune was making, uh, they, they made something and I, uh, iPods were a thing, but the yeah. Zune was like a way better looking, more durable product. It was a way better, but here's the difference. With the Zune, it didn't have a complimentary um, place that they could download music that, that was not only free, but high quality because that was the downfall of like Napster and LimeWire and BearShare. You didn't know the quality you were going to get. You didn't really know if it was going to be that song or a DJ was talking over it. So, you know, Apple was like, I bet people will pay for convenience. Created the iTunes store, said, I bet people will pay for the assurance that they're actually getting the song they want at the quality they want. And they had an inferior hardware, physical product, but became way better and put the Zune out because of something lateral to that, that people were willing to pay for. Yeah, People will pay for something as silly as convenience. People will pay for, and that's not always silly. People will pay just for the ability to lay their head down at night and not think, not wake up and be like, oh my God, did I forget to do this? So like everything Everything is worth what the other person is willing to pay for it. Totally. That's it. I mean, that's actually the only answer to what you charge. You know, it's what somebody willing to pay for that, right? And and uh what value are they getting from it? I, I think that I want to finish with one last thing and 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 you know, we'll 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 wrap it up. But Ashley, when I, you know, she was like, Oh, you're talking to Brett today. Make sure you ask him about working with Liz because uh, I feel like you guys do have really have done a good job of like hitting your stride with, with um, you know, working together. And it, it and just from the outside looking in, it actually seems like since Liz has started, uh, you know, full time, you know, working on the business with you, it seems to be 
going much better. So if it wasn't for her, who knows where, uh, where you would be. Yeah, yeah you'd be yeah you'd be dead and so but and and i'd 100 same thing with me you know with ashley and and it's something that we always love to you know see how other people you know do with working with their spouse because you hear so many stories where people say like oh, you should never work with your spouse it's a great way to ruin your relationship but you know i look at you guys i look at us i look at somebody like uh kelly and julie juliet's Tourette, uh and their relationship and and i i feel like if you if if you are respectful of each other and have complementary skills. It's actually one of the greatest sort of assets uh, that's that, that is available. So, uh, how would you how would you like reference and 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 what what advice I guess is better way to put it would you give people that are thinking about working with their spouse or they do work with their spouse from lessons you've learned with uh, with working with Liz? Yeah, it's it's funny by the way we we did episode 100 of our podcast was talking about this when we first kind of started. We need to do another one. She was like, we need to do this. Um, and and as a joke, but somewhat literal, like it's kind of like the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, right? Where the stages of grief, people go through like denial, anger, bargaining, Mm -hmm. depression, acceptance. I would say, and I wrote this down, I was like, when Liz and I started working together, it probably went from, and this is asynchronous, excitement to like frustration to, okay, now we're making progress to overwhelm to, okay, I want to choke you to, oh my God, you're the best thing ever to, this is the best thing for our marriage to, you know, like there's so many like things that you feel. Um, But, you know, I I think that, man, the the best piece of advice is don't listen to, don't listen to everybody. Um, People love to project their stuff on you. I am certainly not going to say, everybody should do it, but I'm certainly not going to talk somebody out of it. And I felt like that's all we got at first was people being like, Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. We found that so far it has worked for us, despite the ups and downs and this and that, because what the things that forced us to get better at were things that we also needed to get better at in our relationship. hundred percent. You know, like my family is very direct. We will meet the conflict head on, not because we like conflict, but just because, you know, we'd rather her, she comes from a family that's wonderful, right? But there tends to be a little bit more passive aggressive behavior, things like that. They don't, they didn't always express things where my family expresses things sometimes too much. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Liz and I could have not worked together, but then, you know, like we still would have had certain issues in our relationship that like wouldn't have come out because you kind of pass each other in the hallway or like you just wouldn't be in those situations. It's it's no different than like an athlete or an individual that needs overload and stress to become a better version of themselves. The job has forced us to communicate at a higher level. The job has forced us to look inward. The job and frustrations force me to figure out my, like anything that I did that that made the job harder for her. And it also forced her to look inward and say, what are my struggles as a human and how is that manifesting in the job? So, you know, I, I think it's great for people that want to be faced with an uncomfortable truth and be exposed to all the areas you're probably not communicating well with your spouse. But if you just want this delusion that everything's good, you know, like don't like don't do that. So yeah. that's what I worked for. But I also want to be very clear. The first year Liz started, you know, about like the first year she like loved it. The second year she was like, I think I need to quit. Like, I can't do this. This is overwhelming. You know, she was learning that she wasn't as good at delegating that as she wanted to be, that she was letting her perfectionistic and like just workhorse tendencies take over. And there was nothing I was going to say. I tried fixing it, which only made her matter at me. Sure. And I realized that like most people, we've got to learn through our own experience. So she just had to learn. She had to realize she could delegate. Sometimes that's not always the case. And then you just had to realize that this is what it is. This is what life and leadership 
and family is, is it's ups and downs and it's a wild ride, but we can look each other in the eye and say, we know each other way better than most couples ever will, because we have to constantly meet like whatever we're feeling, right? There's times where we got to put that aside. We've got to talk that out. So like, I just think people need to dive in and not be so scared of conflict. You know, I do. And and I think that we, that's when it really clicked for us is when we realized we can disagree and have it out on a business sense, but still be husband and wife. Now we still struggle with that. There's still residue sometimes if you disagree, but you got to work through that. And what better training for real life than having to manage that kind of, and by the way, that's also what gives us a license to feel like we can give advice on it. Yeah. Like all the people that say in your lane saying like, piss off. My wife and I work together every day. We've lived it. And we're going to continue to work through it. So it's a struggle, but it's a worthwhile struggle. Yeah, it's 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 like forced therapy is the way I look at it. Yeah. Um, just just because, yeah, you have to uh, you have to learn how to communicate better with each other. You you also have to learn how to understand is this a business conversation? Is this a personal conversation? I think the biggest challenge for people that work together is uh, carrying those conversations over into every aspect of life. Everything turns into a business conversation, which is so hard not to do if you know you're you're so wrapped up in that together. It's such a core focus of your business. And um, you know, it is a challenge, but I do think it's a pretty special thing to be able to work with your spouse and to uh to be able to like work towards a a, a business vision that you have together and and experience that together. And also when it sucks, it sucks for both of you. And you can share in that because I feel like entrepreneurship can be very lonely, especially when things are not going, not going the way that you want. It can feel like, you know, everything is just like not working and you're trying so hard and it's like you're stuck, you know, and and to be able to have somebody to share that with, I think is very helpful as well. Well, and that was the last two things I was going to bring up is, you know, uh, the, the thing that I think that we do that most people might not agree with is we're both the type that will keep working if if we if we're not careful. Like we have to actually be cognizant of like, no, nope, we're going to spend some time together and we're really big. We're going to do a podcast on it at some point where we created an like an intimacy menu checklist. Like, yeah. hey, intimacy's got broad ranging terms, everything from holding hands on a walk to like reading a book together to whatever, date night to anything like that. And we try to accrue a certain amount of points every week because we need to be mindful of that. We want to keep dating each other as spouses. We want to keep, you know, doing those things. And so um, I think that that's important too, because we don't want to have a detached relationship. We don't like, this is not healthy. Um, and I think that you and Ashley are a great example of this, right? Like you guys are great parents. You have a kick-ass business. You, you value experiences, you know, like you've been really successful, but you could hang out with you for like any amount of time. And you're not the type that ever rubbed that in anybody's face and you're not preachy. And so we want to be that. It's just like, you're not an expert until somebody invites you into their life as one. And, you know, just, just balancing all aspects of yourself as a total human and not losing your, yourself in any one piece of that is a critical part of maintaining that relationship. That's it, man. I think that's like, <clears throat> what a good way to, what a good way to end it. Uh, you know, I think uh, everybody is uh, just trying to figure out how to make, to, to, to make it work. You know what I mean? Like how to, how to, hopefully how to be a great, just human being in as many variables and aspects as you possibly can. And, and, um, you know, I think with what you guys are doing, especially with art of coaching and, and the frustrating, uh, lack of being able to communicate with people in, in a, in a meaningful way and, and be able to, I wouldn't say just get what you want in life, but to, to, to be able to effectively, you know, move towards the things that you want and other people know what those are and not have that 
um, that breakdown in communication that can be so frustrating and cause so many problems. Just think about how many, you know, relationships that ruins or opportunities that ruins or, you know, family dynamics that that can strain, like it's such a valuable skill. So, you know, if people are interested in learning more about what you guys are doing and, and, uh, you know, getting ready for the new book you have coming out, where do they, where do they go? What's the best spot? Yeah, real simple, artofcoaching.com. And depending on when this goes out, like we have our Black Friday sale right now. We have tons of folks from a variety, all of our events, all of our stuff is for every profession. So as long as you're somebody that wants to get better at how you deal with people, decision-making, problem-solving, our stuff is for you, artofcoaching.com. Like we have a we have a podcast. Danny's been on it twice. He'll be on it plenty more. Um, but yeah, that's, and then my book, Conscious Coaching, is on Amazon if you do want to learn about the next book, you can just go to artofcoaching.com slash book. We're going to be doing a lot. This book is about uh, navigating power dynamics. Think of it as a playbook for anytime you got screwed over in life, anytime there was a misunderstanding, anytime you feel like, my God, like, why didn't I have that information when I needed it? Because leadership is not just sing-songy, positivity, energy bust type stuff. That's the kind of book this is. What do you do when life gets very gray, things get hard, and people get shady? How do you counter that? So artofcoaching.com slash book is going to be there. Dude, that's not like, who's not going to buy that book? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's it reminds me of uh, how to win friends and influence people. Just like how, who shouldn't read that book? You know, it's like everybody should read and understand this because, we have to deal with it. And there's not, you, I think the only way you learn some of these things is via negative and positive reinforcement in life. You, you learn it in school, you know, you learn it in life and, but there's what it would be much better if you could shorten that, that learning curve or make it a little less steep for people to, to have to figure that out. Cause some people are naturally very good at it. And some people are terrible at it. And I think it's, I mean, a very frustrating element of uh, people's lives. If they can't understand why, what they're trying to get across to people or what their goals are, they just can't seem to achieve those. And they don't know because they're missing something that no one's ever taught them. So I think this is you know, I think it's going to be way bigger than your other book, just because of the focus of what you're talking. I mean, I'm honestly, I think the topic is so generalizable to so many people. Uh, I'm excited for it, man. I'm excited to, I'm a terrible reader, by the way, I will listen to the audiobook. Uh, but, uh, are you going to read the audiobook so I can hear your voice? Yeah. The publisher allows me to, you know, the last one, we couldn't do that, but this one, and especially because I'm like, I'm, I think my voice sucks, but we've had a lot of weird compliments on it lately. So I'm all about it. If you guys huh. want to hear my voice, we'll read it. I'll make sure to chew some more glass and drink some more coffee. So it sounds actually uh, like more gravelly. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll go. Charm is not a language that I speak well. I think, I think you have that uh, old school strength coach voice where they've just yelled so much that they basically permanently caused damage. I think that's what's going on. Okay. Well, as long as it permeates the souls of my readers and it good- does. In, 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 in the most, in the best way, you know, like that's, a, that's a thing. it reminds me of that's what, like an old school, like you've got some miles on, on that, hey, on those Jimmy, vocal cords. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, get out there. You loser, Bobby. Come on. Get out. <laughs> that's it, man. That's it. Well, guys, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much for listening, Brett. Dude, thanks so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy and, and it's always fun to chat with you. So uh, until next time, guys, thanks so much for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time. Later. Hey, Peach Entrepreneurs, we have big, exciting news, a new program that we just came out with that is our PT Biz part-time to full-time five-day challenge. Over the course of five days, we get you crystal clear on exactly how much money you need to replace by getting you ultra clear on how much you're actually spending. 
we get you crystal clear on the number of people you're going to see and the average visit rate you're going to need to have in order to replace your income to be able to go full-time. We go through three different strategies that you can take to go from part-time to full-time. You can pick the one that's the best for you based on your current situation. Then we share with you the sales and marketing systems that we use within our mastermind that you need to have as well if you want to go full-time in your own practice. And then finally, we help you create a one-page business plan. That's right, not these 15-day business plans. You want to take the Small Business Association, a one-day business plan that's going to help you get very clear on exactly what you need to do and when you're going to do it to take action. If you're interested in signing up for this challenge, it's totally free. Head to physicaltherapybiz.com forward slash challenge. Get signed up there. Please enjoy. We put a lot of energy into this. It's totally free. It's something I think is going to help you tremendously as long as you're willing to do the work. If you're doing doing the work, you're getting information put down and getting yourself ready to take action in a very organized way, you will have success, which is what we want. So head to physicaltherapybiz.com forward slash challenge and get signed up today. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I would love it if you got involved in the conversation. So this is a one-way channel. I'd love to hear back from you. I'd love to get you into the group that we have formed on Facebook. Our PT Entrepreneurs Facebook group has about 4,000 clinicians in there that are literally changing the face of our profession. I'd love for you to join the conversation, get connected with other clinicians all over the country. I do live trainings in there with Eve Gigi every single week, and we share resources that we don't share anywhere else outside of that group. So if you're serious about being a PT entrepreneur, a clinical rainmaker, head to that group, get signed up, go to facebook.com forward slash groups, forward slash PT entrepreneur, or go to Facebook and just search for PT entrepreneur. And we're going to be the only group that pops up under that name.